Hello everyone. It's, uh, it's been a while. I took the months of December and January to build a bank of episodes, study, and consider the future and direction of the show. I scheduled quite a few interviews and discussions, so there's a wealth of new and useful material coming your way very soon. I'm also in the process of researching for a more historically-oriented episode that I think many of you will enjoy and get something out of. But I've, I've noticed, as I'm sure you have, that the focus of the show has shifted from narrative and history to a more conceptually varied approach that, yes, draws on history, but also prominently features discussions in education, media, language, and access to information. I know this shift in focus may be disappointing to some of my listeners who were drawn in by the historical topics I covered. However, I fully intend to continue down the path I'm on because it's it's what I find interesting. And that which I find interesting are the kinds of topics I fully commit to and provide the best possible work for you, dear listener. That said, I do have an episode coming up that everyone, regardless of what you're here for, will enjoy. So Look out for my series on the printing press. It's in the works. However, Dirty History as you know it is gone. The name pigeonholed the show, and I want to spread out a bit, and it would be disingenuous to keep the history moniker if my focus is not on history. I do not seek to mislead you. You probably get enough of that already. The show is called Decay of Discourse. Decay, a verb, means decline in quality, power, or vigor. Discourse, a noun, means written or spoken communication or debate. The combination of these words, the phrase it makes, is what I see going on around me, a decay of discourse. I am of the belief that the character and quality of the medium shape the character and quality of the discussion, and having abbreviated conversations on policy or race or history or current events in 280 characters or through a square on Instagram or in a brief TikTok leaves us wanting. But when the mainstream alternative is cable news, I don't think we'd fare much better. You see, I'm not an expert. I don't claim to be, but I enjoy talking to them. I enjoy talking to people who spent their careers in a field and have the authority to speak on a topic with some knowledge and experience. Moreover, I enjoy learning from them. Simply put, I want to engage in communication that has some quality, power, and vigor. I will rail against the decay of discourse, knowing that my medium, my podcast, must be of quality for you. But more than that, I hope to build a community of all of the decay of discourse listeners. So again, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And with that, I have a disclaimer. Presented here is a discussion and a point of view regarding education. The position I take is tentative. I have many unanswered questions, but this discussion, I think, has utility and perhaps some insight. I hope it'll serve you in your thinking of the topic. I'm Thomas Thompson, and you're listening to The Decay of Discourse. Educators now face a tremendous opportunity. Traditionally, our public institutions of learning, primary and secondary school systems, colleges and universities, move at a glacial pace in instituting new methodologies, curriculum, or structural reforms. Some seemingly don't move at all. However, the pandemic changed that. Schools had to adapt quickly. Some 
with only weeks to do it, and there certainly were failures to accompany some of those successes. The title for this episode is Pandemic You. The conversation centers on the challenges and opportunities of learning and teaching during a global crisis. Teaching and learning in institutions whose very foundations were shaken and altered by the pandemic at a speed and degree that has rarely been experienced by these institutions. New issues in curriculum and funding came forward and issues long-standing were exacerbated. My guest for the episode is Dr. Jason Hilton, a professor of education at Slippery Rock University, a Pennsylvania state school that began as a normal school in 1889. A normal school was a place meant to train and prepare teachers to teach in the community and nearby area. It's fitting that someone working in an institution that from its inception has been committed to studying education and the teacher's role in it is joining me to discuss the possibilities that the pandemic presents for a total consideration and reformation to not only our education system, but our ideas about what teaching, education, and schooling are and the place they have in a person's lifelong process of learning. The banking system of education and its implicit structural values of obedience, authority, trivial irrelevance, passivity, and consumption are challenged by many of the steps taken in the pandemic, steps whose values are by their very nature of flexibility, which means slowing down, not jamming so much content on the throats of students and allowing attempts not for remembrance for high-stakes standardized trivia, but for, perhaps, dare I say it, mastery of concepts that will serve students beyond their schooling? This is my conversation with Dr. Jason Hilton. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Jason Hilton, who, in addition to being an early mentor of mine and stoking my desire to be an educator, is also an accomplished educator himself, having taught in public schools for eight years. Uh, Ten years in public schools. Ten years in public schools. And you're now working out of one of, in my humble opinion, the finest teacher education programs in the country. Uh, Thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk to me. Absolutely. And I agree. Slippery Rock University is one of the finest ones. I've been there for nine years as well. So we've had a chance to to innovate all along the way and, and fortunate to have you as one of our alum. So no matter where I go or who I talk to working in education, there seems to be a general acclaim for schools of education in Northeastern State Colleges. As someone who is working in one of those schools that garners common praise from administrators and fellow teachers, people working in Florida, Maryland, Louisiana, you name it. What is it about the training at these schools that strikes building principals, content supervisors, and superintendents as something worth praising? Oh, wow, that's a great question. So when you think about uh, many of the schools in the Northeast, uh, state universities such as Slippery Rock University, what you're really talking about are schools that began their existence as normal schools. You know, over 100 years, I think we're nearing 130 at Slippery Rock, um, years of training teachers, right? Um, Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we're good at it. We can be bad at something for 130 years, right? But you tend to improve with practice, as you know, as a a teacher. uh, And the practices of education improve over time. But additionally, uh, when you look at the way our schools are set up, um, originally as normal schools and then evolving throughout being um, 
you know, state colleges and ultimately universities, they've never lost track of that sort of educational pedigree and the scholarship that the faculty engage in, particularly those who are in education, is the scholarship that pushes the boundaries of what it means to teach, what it means to teach well, uh, those sorts of things, right? They're, they are teaching universities, so the scholarship tends to be very practical in nature that um, our faculty engage in. They're, they're real-world matters. They're not giant meta-studies of RAND-based data or anything like that, although certainly some do. They're really applicable in a very practical sense, and, and because that, of that, even once we leave the public school classroom, we remain uh, quite deeply embedded within it as we continue to help shape that classroom and 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 really help to keep our bridges with, uh, you know, the, the classroom teachers that are involved in our own work and involved in pushing the field themselves. What is then, in your estimation, the most meaningful experience in a teacher's education? Uh, oh, it's absolutely when that person is in a actual classroom. So you think about the field experiences, the practicum, and the student teaching. Uh, to me, that is the most meaningful uh, part by far, or at least as far as um, I would say that they're maybe I would use the term most transformative okay. in this case, uh, because, you know, the, the things you learn outside of that, the traditional classes, how to teach assessment, whatever, they're foundational. Right. And they make sense in sort of a theoretical way. And and maybe if you have a good professor, they get you to apply those things within that class. But it's not until you're in the classroom trying to execute what you learned in those foundational classes along with you know everybody that's in there and the myriad of human interactions that are occurring and human interpretations that are occurring that you really see what's what's going on right yeah. um, so those are absolutely the most transformative experience that those classroom experiences we're gonna we're gonna return to that but i i think this sets up a larger discussion about the rule of medium-sized regional state colleges essentially these institutions always seem to me to help make our middle class. Is that a is that a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. In in Pennsylvania, the charter that creates the state university system, it mentions very clearly in it that the system is meant to be one that drives economic prosperity and growth, particularly for those from the lower class. So our mission statements, if you go through all the legislation uh, related to the creation of the state university system in Pennsylvania, is that we are specifically to target uh, students from low socioeconomic backgrounds and students who may be the first student to ever go to higher education. We're to specifically target them and to train them for jobs within the Commonwealth, which is why education is a big thing, right? Because there are yeah. a lot of people in Pennsylvania, um, so that they can come in uh, with lower socioeconomic backgrounds and leave uh, with the skills, the knowledge, and the dispositions uh, to to have, you know, middle class, uh, to, to move into the middle class and to produce for the Commonwealth. That said then, if these are the kinds of institutions that play such a pivotal role in much of our country's social mobility, why are they failing financially? Or at least, what are some of the major causes that you point to? I would point to the change in the way that these universities are funded. So I am a graduate of a state university. I went to Edinburgh, which is an hour north of Slippery Rock, uh, and I graduated from there in 2002. And when I graduated from Edinburgh University in 2002, um, the state funded about 75% of the costs to run Edinburgh University and all of them. It was a similar funding platform, right? Um, over time, the state legislature has cut the allocation to the state system so that now it is down to 25%. Hmm. Now, the, that doesn't mean that the universities became more efficient. It means that they had to shift the cost onto the students. And so now what you have in Pennsylvania is a state system that ranks 
47th, 48th, 49th, or 50th, the bottom of the barrel in the, in our particular country, right? And yeah. it ranks that not because of academic program. Our quality is still very high. Our outcomes are very high. It ranks that because of the cost to attend and the amount of debt that students leave with. When you do that, you begin to create a space where those students who were meant to appeal to, lower socioeconomic students, are just shut out. They cannot afford to attend. You know, a year of tuition and board at Slippery Rock University is about $26,000. You know, put that into a four-year degree. That's a serious debt burden we're asking someone to take on. When I went to school, it was a, it was a fraction of that. Yeah. Um, so it, it can't realize its mission without the appropriate funding in order to Def do so. Definitely. You're speaking to someone who has seen that firsthand. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, and I think this is in line with what, when I was an undergrad, which, again, that wasn't long ago at all. There were near constant rumors about declining enrollment, budget cuts, possible closures across many PA state schools. So when I see an article like the one I recently saw in the New York Times, I think you shared it on your um, on your Twitter about the pandemic imperiling working class colleges. I have to ask, is it that the requirements to operate under the pandemic are creating new problems or is it that they're kind of exacerbating the ones that have long been standing, or is it kind of this weird mixture of both that perfect cocktail? Uh, you know, it is, it is sort of a mixture of both. These, these issues have been coming to a head for a while. So it's not just the pandemic. I mean, then in that New York times article, it just eloquently covers not only the impact of the pandemic and, and the statements going around, but how personal that actually is. It details professors and their relationships with students and what that means. Right. Um, but this in Pennsylvania, uh, this has been coming for a long time in the way that the schools are funded um, and in the ways in which um, historically the state schools have actually been pitted against one another. So they are funded independently. They advertise independently. Uh, they sort of often, you know, when I'm on my way up to Slippery Rock University from my home in Pittsburgh, I pass by two California University billboards on my way up to Slippery Rock. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm going the opposite direction of California University. So they have historically been in competition with each other, which has not been helpful. Um, right. And and then you bring in the pandemic. Um, and what the pandemic did was it accelerated a trend that was going to hit us in 2025. Pennsylvania already has a has a demographic shift in which the, more people are who are young, like yourself, graduate and leave. That's why you live in Maryland. All right. So let's say you establish yourself down there. You have a family, you have kids. That's great. You're good for Maryland because they've got young, productive you and they've got your your young you know, children coming along as well. Most Pennsylvanians, it's an exit state. People are leaving the state. They're not coming in. Those that are here tend to be older and they're not they don't have children who are going to colleges. Right. Yeah. So as the number of graduating high school seniors decreases, you have a decreased number of students available. Additionally, Pennsylvania is it, the definition of a free market when it comes to higher education. There are over 120 institutes of higher education in Pennsylvania. You go to a state like Georgia, right, where you, mm -hmm. you have a growing population, you see far fewer institutes of higher education. They tend to be more specialized too. So that if you wanted to be a teacher, say in Georgia, you might only have your pick between 10 institutions in the state. Whereas in Pennsylvania, you have your pick between 93 institutions in your state. So that has that also creates a space where mm -hmm. You know, you you have you can really run into trouble with how, where do the students go? How do you recruit them? How do you do? So you you combine with that it's for state schools rising costs, right to attend plus competition from all around. Uh, you know, you really can get some some painful things. And then the pandemic, of course, created this space where students really desired to have a face to face um, experience. 
right? Uh, of course, like most, most people uh, or most students that I encounter at Slippery Rock want a face-to-face -face class. That's why they're coming there. Uh, and they are forced out of that. You had other uh, universities that, um, you know, we, well, we made the call very early on that we were going to have a, we were going to have an online uh, semester, right? In order to give our faculty time to plan, in order to give students time to, to make adjustments as needed. There were other universities and colleges in Pennsylvania that waited until the very last second. They essentially uh, bait and switched their students into their colleges, right? So if we made the announcement, we were going to be online and they shopped around a bit and saw someone else said, oh no, we're going to be in person. Students made that switch. And then one week before they were to go in person, oh, turns out they're online at whatever that other place is too. Mm. So there were some shady market practices that occurred as well. But all of that, when you combine it together, uh, really creates this kind of perfect cocktail, as you, as you pointed out. Well, how many state schools are there in the state system in PA? Yeah, in Pennsylvania, there are 14 state schools, mm -hmm. all right? There are also four state-related schools. And so the state-related schools are Pitt, Penn State, um, Temple, and Lincoln, uh, which are both out in the Philly area, right? Mm -hmm. um, and people often confuse that because when you think about, um, you know, like Georgia, Georgia State is a part of the state system, right? But Pennsylvania State is not. So you have you have yeah. state system, which is the 14 PASHI schools. You have state-related, which are, are the you know, the, the three big ones and then Lincoln that you ha probably haven't heard of until now. And then you have the private um, universities, which are all the, you know, the Catholic universities, the Protestant universities and the non-denominational uh, liberal arts universities throughout the state. So not only is there competition between the state schools, there's a competition between the state schools, the state affiliated schools, the state schools, state affiliated schools and the private schools. You got it. Yeah, wow. we tend to when they do recruiting, they tend to put schools into tiers. And so you sort of look at who's in your tier. You know, and, and there are certain things you don't want to do. So, for instance, if if Slippery Rock were to grow to, say, 20,000 students, um, it would be in the same tier as Pitt, but would be unable to compete against Pitt for students. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, if Slippery Rock shrinks to a thousand students, it's in the same tier as, say, Grove City or Mercyhurst uh, yeah. and struggles to compete with those groups. Right. So folks are sort of in their lane. Uh, but they're always, of course, being told to grow because that's how you generate revenue. Uh, so you end up with these, these, you know, these things. And there's, you know, there's a touch of mismanagement. Uh, university administrators turn over fairly quickly. You know, it's, it's, it's abnormal to see a university president in place for more than about five years. Uh, you look at construction on campuses. Uh, buildings can take seven years to complete. I regularly do, right? So university presidents will sign off on, you know, multi-million dollar expenditures that they're never around to see the ultimate impact of. Yeah. You look at that in the dorms, uh, which are a large driver of cost for uh, university students, um, is the, the giant suite dorms that they have. You look at the recreational centers with, you know, highly complex rock climbing walls and, mm -hmm. you know, multiple whatever courts. And, you know, you look at the, the dining halls that uh, really, you know, mirror much more mall food courts now than anything else. You know, those things are yeah. expensive. Right. And and they do that because when someone's a, a senior in high school and they come to tour the campus, that's really what they see. They mm -hmm. see the dorm room, they see the rec center and they see the food. And so they trick them, trick them to coming with flashy stuff, but then they pay the bill for that flashy stuff. So th this leads one to ask, I, I believe it was well, the book's called Case Against Education. I think it was Brian Kaplan who discussed it's not that schools need more funding. It's the proper allocation of the funding they have. Is, th is, that a, is that a case that you're seeing or is it, yeah, it's the misallocation of resources, but we also need more resources? Yeah, it is both. Absolutely. Um, you need managers that are held accountable for 
what they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to, again, set the wheels in motion and then, and then move on to the next thing, which really limits accountability for, for their actions, right? Um, but you, they do need to be, um, there does need to be more as well if we're going to offset the cost to students, right? Yeah. If we're going to return to our original mission, which is to help those who are not well-resourced, then we need to do that. Right. And this isn't to. one school. I mean, I hear this yeah. nationwide. Yeah. Yep. There's a lot of discussion that I'm hearing currently about enrollment and students taking a pandemic gap year. It's like, I'm just going to wait for things to settle down. As a professor, as an educator, do you see value in students taking that gap year with concerns over COVID? Or do you fear that taking that break, taking that gap could be a, I don't know, an educational death spiral or something where they don't come back to school? I mean, should we be sounding the alarm five bells or is it going to be like a pragmatic approach? People want decent paying jobs. And if a degree is the requirement for that, they're going to come and get a degree if they can. Boy, I'm going to go really <laughs> out on a limb here. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that personally, I believe every student should take a gap year between high school and college. I okay. think that the real life experience that someone can get by having to go out, get a job, you know, do those kinds of things. I think that that is very, um, very enlightening and maturing for students. Right. So I think too often students rush from high school into college. As a result, they switch majors multiple times. They spend six years getting four year degrees, that sort of thing. So I mm-hmm. I am in favor of a gap year for everyone. So so there we go. I probably no, shot I, whatever's I going on that. there. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, uh, a pandemic related gap year, I don't know that that makes sense. If your goal is to finish something, then finish it. Right. Yeah. Um, now, do I think that um, students should pay the same cost? for what they're getting. No, um, yeah. I think that they should be paying for what they're getting. So for instance, you have cases throughout the country where students were brought back in person, uh, famously, you know, the North Carolina state system, they brought their students back in person and then three weeks later booted them all out, but did not refund their housing fees to them. Hmm. So they basically got these students on the hook for all of that money, right? Now, fortunately, at Slippery Rock, we did the right thing. We prorated and, and refunded our students mm-hmm. uh, because we were able to do that. But there are other actors acting in certain ways, right? That, that, and that's a problem, you know? Yeah. Well, another example is at Slippery Rock, our online classes are cheaper than our in-person classes. In many places, that's not the case, right? Now, if you signed up for an in-person class and it was switched to online because of a pandemic, you know, the, that faculty member is going to do their very best to provide the highest quality experience they can, but it is not what that faculty member wants to be doing. It's not what you wanted to be doing. So the chances of it being a hundred percent satisfactory compared to what it would have been in person are very low. Right. And there deserves to be some separation there, you know? And so I'm I'm thankful that Slippery Rock creates that separation as well. And then that's what I'm hearing from a lot of the people I'm talking to are taking this pandemic gap year. It's like, I don't want to pay $40,000 to be in an online class. Right. It's it's definitely an economic concern. And as for your talking about just a gap year in general, I can totally attest to that being useful. I mean, most of what most of the meaningful learning experiences I had did not occur in the classroom. You know, they happened with me doing the reading on my own or me having Mm -hmm. conversations with people like you right now. I mean, that's where a lot of the learning comes from, that real life experience, as you talked about. Yeah, absolutely. you have, a, you have a book forthcoming called Pandemic University, Teaching and Learning in a Global Crisis. I'd like to hone in on, on a few areas. To start, yeah. as some context for the listeners, could you provide uh, you know, a general broad overview of the kinds of steps your school, Slippery Rock, took in weathering COVID? Sure. Uh, so we 
it was really the, a, a timing of sorts. We knew that we were sending the students out for spring break uh, last spring. You know, uh, early March was our spring break, which is early actually in the calendar, the way universities do that. So we were fortunate in that timing. Uh, but we had uh, a lot of data models that suggested a pretty rapid spread. At this point, there were no masks. There was people were sort of just talking about social distancing, right? A lot of people were talking about this is a, this is fake or it's you know it's just the mm -hmm. flu or something, right? Uh, but our university. Um, saw enough into the future to say, look, this is a risk. Uh, we need to think about what we're going to do. Uh, and so what we're going to do is we're going to extend spring break for two more weeks so that we don't bring everyone back who may have gotten this virus somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and that in, the, in that period of time, we're going to see uh, about coming back, right? Yeah. And so that announcement was made right before spring break hit. So students now the week following, they're out on spring break. During that time, it became very clear that this wasn't going to be short term. There was some thoughts early on that maybe this is a two week thing, right? Well, mm -hmm. obviously it's not. But, yeah. uh, you know, so at that point, we realized we were going to have to offer online for the remainder of the semester. And so faculty were given that time to make that shift because it's a lot of work to make a shift like that. Many of our most of our faculty had never taught online. And so they're getting rapid transition at that point right those of us who had online classes they sort of mostly stuck with what they were doing although some professors teaching online including myself did make some modifications um, it, understanding that the students that are in our classes were in a different world and their requirements were were different right um, so after that two-week period of time our face-to-face -face classes resumed in an online format and um, you know I would describe what happened in the in the six weeks that finished with you know the best we could do with what we had and that's really what that book captures it captures what faculty and administrators and students um, across our university did in the two weeks leading up to the six weeks yeah. and then during the six weeks what kind of platforms they used how they um, kept the things that are important about class which really involved for many a, a real critical thinking about what is it about class that's important? Is it is it content acquisition? Is it socialization? Is it application of what you know? Is it skill development? What is it? It varies by discipline, right? Um, and so professors did the best they could uh, with that period of time, and uh, and it and it went in a variety of ways. You know, some uh, really pulled off what looked like educational miracles in that time period. Others sort of made it by. Um, others failed, you know, others had classes that just didn't work out. Others failed in that they couldn't adjust. You know, it really was just a, you know, a, an unprecedented move to make. Yeah. Remember, higher education historically is glacial in its change, right? Like we just do not pivot well because we have to sit around and talk about things for months in, or in order to make a decision. Mm -hmm. So to have to rapidly do it in that period of time, right? It led to real consternation, um, but it captures that. And that was really about trying to deliver what we could. Um, on the student end, it involved getting some, uh, many students resources to be able to engage online. Many of our students, you know, you, you think about in this day and age, if you're connected to the world, you think isn't everyone, but we still have students who don't have the internet at home. Um, and so we, we actually bought like Verizon internet hubs for students and sent them to them so that they could engage in the, in the classroom material. We actually had a couple of professors in that situation. That never dawned on me, uh, but same sort of thing. So we had to do that. We had to move a lot of our, our, our um, programming over. Zoom, man, I wish I could have bought stock in Zoom back in February uh, because Zoom, uh, Zoom crashed a number of times uh, in March due to 
overload, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so Zoom had to had to scale up and get their servers on board. We were fortunate that um, we had enough bandwidth to handle a lot of what we were going to do on our campus. Uh, and so we were able to to adjust in that regard. But there, um, there was a lot of back end work there, you know, our IT department, making sure that everything was staying up up to speed, all the systems were working and all that stuff. So the delivery could happen. And then we're fortunate at Slippery Rock. We have a group called the Center for the Teach for Center uh, Center for Teaching and Learning, mm -hmm. the CTL. And they're tasked with professional development and enhancing instruction at Slippery Rock. They really jumped into high gear, um, providing SNAP professional development resources to faculty um, and providing support to students who needed help understanding how to shift to certain platforms or those types of things. So that is how we pivoted in the spring um, and we got to the end and it was survival, right? It was survival yeah. mode. Um, I Almost every faculty member, the other aspects of their job, the scholarship and the service aspects of their job ground to a halt so that they could just focus on doing that transition right so normally we do that kind of tri tripart workspace where we teach we do scholarship we do service it was just trying to teach at that point in time um, that's actually the other purpose of our book is it allowed those um, it allowed faculty to have an outlet for some scholarship where they could kind of write about what they did in a, in a scholarly way so their production wasn't completely halted during that time in the summer we thought early on uh, that we were going to return to fall on in person you know we thought that we might be facing a vaccine or we might be facing, you know, maybe sunlight would kill it all. I don't know. You know, I could keep going yeah. with that, but it gets funnier the go further I go. <laughs> so we we planned that way, but we also planned, you know, what if. Right. And one of the biggest challenges we had to deal with was the CDC guideline that everyone needs six foot of space in a room. So you take a classroom that's that needs uh, or that has maybe 49 seats in it. Right. It's kind of our average class size at, at Slippery Rock. Um, the class needs between it depends on the professor, but to break even uh, the average is it needs about 24 students in it to break even. All right. So below that, you, you know, the brick and mortar costs, the salaries, the benefits, all that kind of stuff. Um, so the CDC guidelines took many of our 49 student classrooms and turned them into 13 student classrooms. Okay. And so then it became how in the world do you do that like how do you yeah. offer that we talked for a long time about doing what we call multimodal which is where some students are online some students are in person sort of at the same time uh, but what happens is that that just becomes so unwieldy that basically both groups of students get the very worst product possible right you get the yeah. worst yeah. in person and the worst online experience and so we um ultimately in july we could see the data models coming with the fall that it was COVID was not going away. In fact, it was going to come back and we we chose to go a much safer route. Uh, we're in the fall. We were about 80 percent online and about 20 percent in person. Uh, you can think about our healthcare programs where you need to have people in person. You don't want someone performing a healthcare operation on you who's only sort of talked about it online. Right. Yeah. So those kinds of things were in person. Um, student teaching to the degree that it could be uh, was in person. Those sorts of things. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and we probably could have been a little bit more in person in the fall looking back, but that's hindsight, right? The risk is, yeah. you know, you'd rather have been too safe than not safe enough. Right. So we were, we were sort of there. Um, and that is what we're doing this spring as well. Uh, but the quality of education has greatly increased because a lot of lessons were learned, uh, from the spring. Uh, there was a great deal of professional development that faculty engaged in both on their own and through the university in the summer. 
uh, and they now have experience. Uh, so mm -hmm. they, and we also, uh, you know, we, we surveyed our students. We asked them what they liked, what they didn't like. We got some real ideas about their preferences and, and we're able to adjust our teaching to that degree. So it's getting better. Um, it's still not my preferred way to teach, yeah. uh, nor is it many of other, you know, I know our students still wish to be back as our faculty, uh, but we're sort of making do as we can at this point and hoping that in this coming fall, uh, we can have a much more in-person offering now that rapid testing and vaccines are, are becoming more readily available. Yeah. I mean, you, you discussed this point and I was surprised looking at COVID how it revealed the vast inequities in internet access. That really, that definitely surprised me when I came to the realization as you did that like, wow, a bunch of my staff members don't have internet access at their house. Mm -hmm. they, they can't teach from home. Yeah. That was definitely a shocking experience. So when we're considering the impacts of COVID, were there specific areas of a university that are more affected than others? Or is it really a collective concern that affects every department, not one more than another? There, yes. And I'm gonna, I want to hit on something you just said there, because I want to talk for a second about uh, socioeconomic status. And then I want to come to your question again, because you hit on something that I've often I've often talked about in classes and I and I've often tried to point out, you know, we talk a lot um, when we talk about diversity training for educators. We talk a lot about race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, those sorts of things. We mention socioeconomic status, but we we do not give it the same play that we give gender, sexuality, racial and ethnic diversity. Right. My my sense from my own work and my sense from my own scholarship is that socioeconomic status has always actually been a much bigger driver of educational outcomes than other aspects of diversity. They're intersectional. So I don't mean to divorce divorce socioeconomic mm -hmm. status from race and ethnicity. They do go together. Right. Um, but socioeconomic status, I think, has a much bigger determinant in the educational outcomes um, someone has. It's the reason to have a state system that specifically targets low SES folks. Um, so starting with that, this pandemic ripped that Band-Aid right off and exposed yeah. right away that, in fact, it is socioeconomic status. And it really, in this case, you really saw a, a moves in the opposite directions, much greater move toward social inequality, where those who have access to technology, those who are able to get a much higher quality education than those who do not. Many students just pieced out, right? They couldn't, they couldn't navigate what they needed to do to get the technology, and they were gone. They didn't make it into the final part of the spring semester. They're no longer in college. Right. And many students who are not as adept with technology, uh, they may say they're taking a gap year, but they're going to be waiting until they can go face to face because they just aren't going to be into that. Right. Yeah. So I think socioeconomic status this fully exposed that that's that's, a, that's actually a huge determinant. And, and then it exaggerated. So your question was originally uh, were there are parts of the university that were more greatly impacted by what happened. Absolutely. So a university is much more than its classes. Right. Um, if it were just its classes, college would be simply transactional. You would go, get credits, get a degree, graduate, right? And some people see it that way. And there are universities, uh, particularly online, historically online universities, that pitch themselves into that market, just a purely, in, you know, purely transactional reason to go, right? I need a credential, I'm gonna go get it. Um, our university is not like that. Our university is one where it's about the experience. Uh, so it's about the curriculum, the classes, and the co-curricular. You know, the student organizations, the student engagement activities, the guest speakers, the various celebrations, the various memorials, uh, the athletics, you know, our ROTC, uh, you know, everything that makes up Slippery Rock as a whole. All of that engagement stuff, all of that co-curricular stuff just, you know, really ground to a halt. Um, 
classes became the priority, particularly in the spring, there wasn't much that could be done in those areas at all. This fall, uh, folks in that co-curricular side have come up with some things to try to go along and to offer things to students. You know, in, in my case, I'm the director of our honors college, which is a large co-curricular component. You know, we were organizing small gatherings on campus, uh, kind of walkthrough gatherings, and we were having all sorts of online Zoom activities for our students, but it's not the same thing. You know, we're just trying to fill the gap uh, to give our students the best thing that we can. That area, that that non-instructional side, you know, that co-curricular side, that's the area that really suffered the most in this. You know, and that's a side that has more than the number of faculty are on the on the teaching side. There are more people employed and more people engaged with uh, creating that college, that well-rounded college experience. Mm -hmm. You know, and I fear that 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 could take a hit too, right? And, and a more permanent hit. They tend to be not protected. They tend to not be in uh, in bargaining units. Um, so they tend to be at will employees who can be kind of let go as costs dictate that. You know. Um, and that's a shame, right? Yeah. Uh, because they do hard work and it's very valuable work at a university. So to me, the, the loss of the college experience and in our case, the residential college experience or the, or the near residential, you know, from commuting that you can still get engaged in a lot of activities on campus, even though you don't live on campus. Um, so I, I fear that that's been the real missing piece. And I think that's what students feel, you know, particularly current freshmen, sophomores who got a taste of it last, last year, right? I feel like that's the thing that they're missing uh, mostly at this point. And that that's something it's like one of those unseen problems like the um, the staff not having access to Internet, students not having access to Internet. When I'm having conversations about the economics of schooling, about the economics of education, people seem to often the general public seems to often forget, you know, they think a school is teachers, you know, um, custodian and administration. And that's it. But there's so much that goes into properly running a school and running a proper educational experience for students because it's so much more than just the classes as you were saying now that said i want to go back to where we opened this conversation with with teacher education programs and what new lessons are aspiring teachers learning in the school of education due to the impact of covid well let's see I mean, I'm, the lessons are many. There's probably right? many, and, many, many. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I'm sure that when we look back at this, when it's all over, we will actually find more that people have learned when we reflect upon this in kind of a scholarly way, right? Uh, but but as I think about the students that I interact with now, um, certainly it is a willingness to go into the unknown that didn't previously exist. I mean, at the core of what we do is the lesson plan, right? And so we plan out often minute by minute what is going to happen in our classroom, uh, what our days, weeks, whole calendar uh, is going to look like, right? And that's the tradition, you know, and when you have a fire drill in a traditional classroom, you it, it upsets teachers. You're like, where, yeah. how am I going to get that 20 minutes back? You know, that kind of thing, right? Now we're in a case where week to week, public school teachers and therefore student teachers, field students, that kind of thing, don't know if the students will be in person, if they'll be at home, if they'll bring some hybrid format where some are there and some are not. You know, so that's just a radical shift in the amount of uncertainty that a teacher is willing to accept. And teachers, by and large, tend to be uh, forward, go-getter, not procrastinator. I call them precrastinators, getting stuff done ahead of time so that it doesn't stress you out. You know, borderline OCD sort of individuals, very type A, you know, kind of people. Mm -hmm. um, that's just who this field draws, right? And this requires a different mindset. 
Um, and I think we're learning it, right? Yeah. Um, and it's, so that is a radical one. I, it's actually amazing to me, um, you know, watching how flexible folks have become. You know, it's, to me, the most amazing thing truly is watching kids in school right now. They mm -hmm. don't seem phased at all. I mean, I can tell you they are because I have to deal with my second grader here at home. Yeah. Uh, but in the classrooms, they seem fine. You know, when they're in school, even though they got a mask on, even though class looks weird, right? They're cool. Like they're just happy to be around each other and that kind of thing. Yeah. The teachers, they're having a hard time with it. We're having a hard time with it. So it seems like the, the longer you've been in this career, the more of a hard time you're having with it. My hope is that people who are in teacher education right now, you know, our future, our teacher candidates uh, are actually developing a skill set that will help them whatever the, the turbulence brings in the future, right? And may actually create um, less stressful classrooms for their students in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Some some of the times teachers who are like on to the grind, you know, they plan out lessons where students are grinding bell to bell, like, yeah. you know, grinding away, right? That's stressful for many students. Some of these more flexible, you know, roll with the punches approaches that these teacher education students are getting, mm -hmm. um, I think will actually benefit their future students um, in their classrooms. So that's, that's, a, that's certainly a lesson. You know, another lesson is, one that we've amplified. So we've always tried to prepare um, those who will be teachers to to adapt to emerging technology. You know, we try to give them the skill set to think about technology, but understanding that every you know every five years or so, the dominant technologies in the classroom are different. Whether it's tablet computers, smart boards, whatever. Right. Many of us were trained on threading eight millimeter film rolls and uh, original Ditto machines and stuff like that. And, and so we, we train the dispositions, but we can't train for the technology that doesn't exist yet. Yeah. You know, um, teachers, or teacher education students now, you know, they're really getting an opportunity to go with emerging technology. They're finding new platforms all the time. You know, they've really accelerated the degree to which they find, learn, and then make best use of uh, technologies that are available out there. And that's going to be a benefit as well. You know, you're looking at a a generation of students in classrooms now that, that they will teach, right? That are these digital natives that have sort of, other than socioeconomic issues where some may not have had the technology, those who have had it are quite adept with the yeah. technology. And so these teachers are meeting those students now in a space that they're generally, um, they're generally good with. You're seeing a lot more gamification of education. Mm -hmm. So, you know, games to learn with, which are always, a, you know, a great idea for how to learn, um, you know, and, and you're seeing a lot more, um, really student-centered pedagogy where things you're, you're not watching hour-long lectures yeah, you're yeah. you're doing things that make sense in five ten minute intervals you know so in in many ways i think that this will make education better if if we survive it uh because of these the way that it's forcing mm -hmm. current new teachers and, and those who want to be teachers to be as innovative daily far more so than they were in the past the, the listeners can't see this. I've just been nodding like an idiot this entire time, my, <laughs> my jaw slack, because a lot of what you're describing are exactly the practices I see in my own classroom and exactly the relationships I see developing. Like the the relationship between the young untenured teacher and the mentor teacher has completely switched at my school, where it's the young teacher who's really walking through the more experienced teacher on these new tools that they have to use. And I, I feel... I really do feel for the teachers who were going to retire this year and, you know, they had it, they feel like they had it all figured out and then uh -huh. it's just upended completely a different ball game for them. So yeah, it's a it's last not, year challenge. <laughs> it's really not how they saw their last years, right? I really don't believe so. Yeah. Now don't, don't feel too bad. They're happily moving into retirement. Oh, no, uh, for with, sure. Yeah. With benefits that they earned over a career. Right. So, so don't feel too bad for them, but yeah, I get you. Uh, you know, we would see even prior to this, 
cases where student teachers would be out in classrooms with more veteran teachers and the veteran teachers would become reliant upon the student teacher for using the technology that's in the room. You know, the veteran teacher might not even know how to use the smart board or might not know how to do anything other than have students turn on an iPad and do something very basic, right? So we were already starting to see that to some degree, but I am totally sure that we are seeing just a massive amplification of that uh, in, in this pandemic. You know, I, I bet in many cases, actually, that student teachers are probably responsible for the quality of education that's happening in public schools because they are there well, I, should say, I shouldn't just say student teachers, newer teachers, too, who are adept with this stuff. They are probably what is is creating a higher quality product right now as they help uh, the, the districts to navigate this space in a more effective and efficient way. So to take it a step further, then, what deficiencies do you foresee future teachers who had their training during COVID to encounter? Perhaps deficiency is the wrong term. Maybe... What are the main differences that you've noticed between a teacher being trained during COVID versus a teacher being trained otherwise? And I think you've already alluded to this, a little bit of that flexibility piece. Yeah, it's, it's going to be hard because we're not out of it yet, right? Yeah. So you're yeah. asking me to, to jump into the future and then look backwards, right? <laughs> so Yeah, that, that was a poor question. I'll give I don't, you that one. <laughs> I, don't see, I don't see this as being a negative. I, I just don't see how um, folks who are newer to teaching, folks who are um, in teacher education programs, I, I don't see how this hurts them other than if they get a lack of exposure to students, right? And that has happened to some degree. Some, some of the field experiences have been moved into online formats and those types of things, right? I think that is a detriment, but that is a detriment that can be shored up quickly uh, in the first year of teaching or in exposure, say, for folks who maybe are camp counselors at a summer camp or something like that. You know, many, many uh, teacher candidates have a lot of experience with young folks through work that they have done. So I don't see that as a general deficit. I just think that some students are getting that deficit. Yeah. I think in the end, now that you've asked me to jump in the future and look back, I don't think we're going to see deficits to teacher education. I think we're going to see advances, radical, mm -hmm. rapid advances um, in the way people teach and what is expected. Um, hopefully, one benefit we will also see is that parents will quit beating down the door of teachers and complaining about every this and that thing yeah. that happens because they now can see just how challenging this task is. And maybe they'll be more appreciative of, mm -hmm. of the work teachers are doing. Right. And now I'm not, I'm not holding out all hope on that one, but um, hopefully it, it creates a more um, realistic view of the work of teachers. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you do not hear generally anymore, any negative narratives about teachers. You know, you might hear some complaints about my teacher gives my kid, you know, too much of this or too much of that or whatever. Right. Uh, but you don't hear the, the vast negative stuff about teachers are lazy. Teachers make too much money. No one bothers with that conversation anymore. That that narrative died uh, and certainly it was starting to die already. And it certainly died in March when all those kids came home and had to be homeschooled. So I, I see this as a positive if we survive it. Yeah. Now, I say if we survive it, because a lot of people are leaving the profession. It's just too challenging in this environment. So you have a lot of teachers in there, you know, if they're five years in, 10 years in, they're like, you know what, I'm out of here. You know, I don't want to do this. A lot of teachers are saying this isn't what I thought it would be. Um, and we were already, because of a 10-year-long narrative that ended only a couple of years ago, there was an anti-public education narrative at play, you know, that was suggesting that, you know, you don't want to be a teacher. Weird restrictions were being added to teachers, weird requirements to do awkward reporting and to hold them accountable for data that they're not they don't have any impact on all those kinds of things, yeah. right? That was really driving down 
um, the recruitment of students into teacher education, you know, such that we have shortages all over the country now as a result. Um, so those who make it through, I think will be more, uh, will be more, will be really great teachers. Yeah. But I think the problem we're going to have is how do we recruit teachers? I think we're going to have to figure out what we can do to get teachers, um, you know, at all. Because I think that the combination of this hardship plus that tenure narrative that was anti-teacher really did a lot of damage that we're just beginning to see the, the um, impact of now. Two points from what you just said. I, I had this conversation earlier today. I mean, we face a tremendous opportunity to change the system of education, which has really been seemingly stagnant for many years. You know, the, the, the actual structure of how... Uh, classes run the you know you get up when the bell rings and the assembly line kind of deal one teacher in front of a class full of 23 to 33 students and you're expected to know how all of those students are going to learn and there's so many considerations and it's interesting to see how this system will have to adapt and change going forward now I would also say that incentives matter when we're talking mm -hmm. about bringing in new yep. talent into the field um outside of the outside of the the fringe benefits there there isn't there isn't too much to offer other than i get to work in the most important profession that i could possibly imagine i mean this is the one public institution that every single nearly every single citizen goes for for an extended period of their life and i feel like it doesn't come up enough um so but have you noticed any hesitation from public schools and bringing in student teachers under these circumstances or are they like we'll take as much help as we can get at this moment no they're definitely worried about it um and so it is ch more challenging to place student teachers now than it was prior to covid um they're concerned because there's no one's really clear yet um who's going to be liable if something happens right there are various laws out there to try to remove liability from organizations for doing their part but none of those exist uh, yet in, in form. And so districts are naturally concerned, right? They're concerned that some stranger might bring uh, COVID-19 into their space. Mm -hmm. um, it's a it's an awkward concern given that they can't control their student body once they leave the doors, right? And they're engaging in all manner of things that may be unsafe anyway. But I get it. You know, they're trying to limit their exposure. Uh, but districts have really gone in different ways. Those that are well-resourced um, tend to be less likely to permit student teachers right now. Uh, because they don't, they feel like they've got it. They don't need the help, and they don't want to create that exposure. Yeah. Other districts, though, you're kind of smaller districts in, in the area. They have often been very open to student teachers because they, they recognize that they need additional support, um, and that student teachers and, and field students in practicum uh, are that support, and that they can mm -hmm. create material that's of a benefit, uh, that, and they can benefit their program. So, you know, it's really a matter of haves and have-nots uh, as far as who's who's getting to do what in those spaces. Yeah. So let me preface this next question by, by stating that I ask it only because I want to hear a smart opinion on it, because I myself am trying to figure it out. I've heard people, especially in ed tech circles, evangelizing, you know, all kinds of new classroom management systems or whatever software. But I've also heard people decry those same kinds of things as cash grabs from tech bros who don't know anything about education or the classroom. So I'm curious what position you take when someone comes to you with a great new tool that you need to implement today, what's your initial reaction? And, and second, what is your metric for you use to determine if a new digital tool would have much utility in your class? 
Boy, that is <laughs> that is a great question. I spent a lot of time railing against this. Uh, let me give a little bit of background. Uh, one of the courses I teach regularly at Slippery Rock University is an international comparative education course. So we look at education in other countries and ours and ours uh, and compare and contrast them. And in particular, we look at uh, education from uh, PISA data. So these are um, tests that are all across of the um, all across the country relating to performance. And it's not like a SAT, it's actually really different. It's cool, check it out. Uh, but anyway, it's, that's an aside. So what we find in many of the top performing countries, think about the Nordic countries like Finland, uh, which is regularly a top performer. And then think about East Asian countries like South Korea, which is also regularly a top performer, right? Um, neither of them rely on technology really at all. Uh, it's not in the rooms, it's not, and I'm sure they are now, uh, but yeah. you know, in a traditional sense, it's not really important. Um, and that's because they recognize that technology is just a tool. It's the yeah. user. You know, if it's a tool that you can use well, then it's going to be of benefit. But no tool in and of itself is going to replace the teacher and what they do or even have any kind of impact at all. You remember B.F. Skinner had this notion of a box that was going to teach people right? The Skinner yeah. box, right? He put his own kids in there and they turned out all kind of messed up. It's a terrible <laughs> history. Uh, that doesn't work, right? And people thought the computer would be the, the Skinner box. And that doesn't work. Um, one of the reasons we have so much technology in the United States is that the Title II funding for special education that goes to school districts permits those school districts to buy technology with that money. So instead of putting that money into, say, extra special education teachers, which I think would have a real benefit, Right. Mm -hmm. They instead poured into one to one device initiatives, which looks like a great thing right now because that pays yeah. off right now. But in general, could be a real waste of funds. Right. Uh, look at all those smart boards they bought that are just sitting in schools right now. Right. They bought they buy that with yeah. Title II funds. So that's a lot of money that comes from the federal government. And there's an incentive for those who develop technology to go after that pot of money. We'd spend in America two to three times the per pupil expenditure that happens in other countries for a product that is um, that often is not as high quality as it is in those other places. And it's because we're spending money in those kinds of things. We have a system that's set up where people know how to um, get a hold of government contracts to um, exploit the bidding process, uh, to exploit the way RFPs go out. And I think that's why we see so much technology in our classrooms and why everyone's selling, you know, the silver bullet magical technology. Yeah. Uh, so that's, you know, that's my feeling on technology. We overplay it. I think if you know how to do it and it's helpful for you, it's a great tool. But if it's not your tool, it's not your tool. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and, it, and there needs to be more academic freedom if you actually want improved education such that those what tools do those. Right. Now, again, COVID is different. We have to use technology. Yeah. Right. So, but I think that when we return to a state of normal, which we will, I think we'll have to go back to thinking about some of these things. I think that's pretty much in line with the position I've been taking that much of the technology teachers use simply amplifies something the teacher was already doing. And I think this is in line with, I've been reading a lot of Marshall McLuhan lately, and he would argue that, you know, Google Classroom is an extension of a teacher's grade book or classroom procedures. A slideshow is an extension of a teacher's notes, the Kahoot, an extension of a teacher's ability to give formative assessment. I mean, the list can go on and the amplifications are myriad. Mm -hmm. When the general public who hears about all these tools and systems, they'll often wonder, okay, well, what's the role of the teacher? Or you'll hear that technology is teacher proof. Do you think then the technology doesn't necessarily change a teacher's role? It's just expanding the toolbox they have to choose from. 
Yeah, it's a fault. The idea that you don't need to teach her anymore is really a false narrative. And yeah. everyone in public now knows the difference, right? Mm -hmm. They, they now true. get it as they have their, their young folks at home with them. They now understand that the, what the teacher does with the technology is what matters, not the technology itself. Um, you know, my own scholarship, you can read, I, I did a study in the district you graduated from uh, mm -hmm. relating to teachers who ad adopt technology and their views on that. We looked at teachers who um, see technology as um, sort of supplemental to what they're doing versus teachers who see it as um, integrated and, and essential to what they're doing. And they really use technology differently, even when presented the same technology. And it isn't that one group is more or less successful in teaching their students. It's just that one group sees technology as more important part of that process, right? Yeah. You know, uh, one of the common things you hear in, in education is people railing against the idea of a lecturer, right? You shouldn't lecture, right? Mm -hmm. But look at how successful TED Talks are. Yeah, that, That's a lecture. That's someone giving a lecture, right? And so it is possible, actually, to, to lecture and create an engaging and active environment. It's very challenging. I think mm -hmm. only about 5% of people can do it. Uh, but it's real, right? And so if you have a, a great TED Talk type of teacher, they should be able to deliver TED Talks that inspire their students, right? Yeah. Uh, but if that's not your forte and you happen to be good at you know, various uh, gamified tools online, you should do that, right? Like it mm -hmm. should be the best fit, right? And that's really the art of teaching is finding the best fit between you, your students, the available resources, that sort of thing. And this, this is very much in line with what I've been thinking lately that and you might disagree with me on this one, that I, myself as a teacher, I cannot teach my kids anything that's not really my job my job is really to set them up to do the learning themselves right of course i'm there as a resource and i will sit down and you know i think the old tools like lecturing and some, sometimes are useful you know you switch them in switch them out and the kids do the most of the work here you know they're doing the learning themselves i'm simply here to inspire that to focus it to give them the resources to work on that so has digital learning under COVID, in your view, exposed any need for vast curricular change? Oh, good question. So um, first of all, I'm mostly with what you said about your responsibility in regard to learning and your capability in regard to learning, but I'm not all the way with you. All right. Okay. Where do you so, take issue? Yeah. I, I, because I think if you say, I, I can't teach them, I can just set them up to learn it releases you from some accountability for what they learn. And I think the teacher should be accountable mm -hmm. for what their students learn, right? I yeah. agree with you that they don't learn unless they want to, but I think it's part of your job to make them want to, right? Yeah. Um, so, so we start with that, but then moving to, um, to, the, to the latter part, right? Curriculum, what, what will this expose? And what, you know, one of the problems we have in our country is that we have curriculum that is really a kind of a smash and grab version of what a curriculum should look like. You know, in, in the United States, for instance, in a math year, you know, a year of algebra or something, a student might encounter 50 new concepts in that in that year. You know, you look at uh, countries that perform better than us, again, Finland, South Korea, places like that, Poland even, which performs similarly to us, uh, but does better in math. It's really only about 15 concepts a year, not 50. And they call it maths, by the way. They don't split it into algebra, geometry, trigonometry. We're weird yeah. that we do that. Um, so the reason that that's important is that they take the time to slow down and make sure their students master those concepts. If you think about a student's progress now through sort of a math curriculum, K to 12, 
they often spend the first nine weeks reviewing what they were supposed to learn in the last year. They make headway in the second and third nine weeks in preparation for some type of standardized test. And then in the fourth nine weeks, they, they do whatever they can to continue to make headway. But now that the test has been completed, they tend to slow down the cycle and whatever. And then you hit this summer space where they don't engage much with mathematics at all. And then you hit reset again. And so you're basically you know, overlapping and overlapping. And as a result, when you look at graduating seniors in America versus graduating seniors in foreign countries, in, in maths in particular, we're often three or four years behind uh, where they are in, in those particular disciplines. So we need to move away from this move everything into the curriculum in one year model. Uh, you know, this idea of we have to hit everything instead to an idea of mastery, right? It's better to yeah. have mastered a few concepts uh, and, than to have hit more concepts, but no, none of them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that this exposes a lot of that too, because teachers uh, trying to move all this to online are finally seeing how much content they actually had been covering. Yeah. Whereas before they just took it as old hat that that's what you would cover, right? But when you when you see it that way, it's boy, is it doesn't highlight it. Yeah. So I'll I'm going to first mount a defense for what I said. <laughs> sure. I, I guess I did not give myself the the best argument. I, generally, I believe I view the teacher as this this catalyst that calls for everyone to become more and more engaged and to become active participants in their learning. So that's what I meant by I cannot teach someone something. Yep. I, I I suppose I can, but that's generally the role I find myself in as the catalyst for the learning experience. Now, another interesting point you brought up was the 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 content the vast amounts of it the this banking system of education where i just try to upload as much knowledge as possible that's something i did notice i'm hearing conversations about well we need to start cutting content so we can stay pace and i'm thinking if if mastery is the goal i like you said i would rather have students master a few areas than have no understanding of many you know because that does not seem to be particularly helpful we are getting close towards the end here. I want to be respectful of your time. I know it's a hectic time to be a teacher, but then again, I suppose it always is. Um, <laughs> I'll end with asking, because I, I know you are a social studies teacher with this. When you look at the world around you, in teaching, in your view, and specifically teaching in the content we do, is it an inherently political act? Absolutely. Yeah, I think, well, you... First of all, I mentioned banking education, which tells me you've been reading Paolo Freire. And so, and some bell hooks as well. Right. And so, Carl Rogers. <laughs> remember that many of these individuals realized um, education as a form of revolution, right? Mm -hmm. And banking education in particular, which is what, I, to be clear, I'm accusing the US system of doing, is really a, an act of repression, not an act of empowerment, right? Exactly. You inundate people with so much that they really don't get anything and therefore mm -hmm. they can't do anything. Um, so, yes, I think that, um, you know, by exposing this, we're, we're in, we have a role to play in changing it. Um, one of the things that I think is going to be helpful is that we've already seen, we saw last year, uh, standardized tests were removed um, from schools. I think we're going to see that again this year. Colleges are moving away from SATs and ACTs. Um, as, the, as the high stakes standardized test goes away, we can return to a more human uh, curriculum to one that is about mastery and about ensuring that people have what they need, you know, and, and we can have real conversations about what is it that people need? Because the conversation right now is what is it that people need to do well on a test? Not what is it that people need to do well in life? 
when the test is gone or, and I'm not against testing. I think we should have comparative testing, but when the high stakes are removed from that, you know, when someone's job isn't on the line anymore, um, then we can have a conversation again about what do people really need in order to be successful, right? To, to pick a a pathway in life that is beneficial and, and meaningful for them, whether that be higher education, technical education, military service, going right into the workforce, whatever. Right. Um, I think that we can, we can do that. Well, I think that's a good a place as anywhere to call it. I um, awesome. really appreciate your time. Um, yeah. This is a great conversation. I got a lot out of this. Hey, thanks for having me. It was fun. It was good to see you again. Good to hear what you're up to. And uh, thanks for, again, thanks for having me on, on the show here.